morning. Um, my children have have probably experienced, um, not probably, have experienced more pain and loss than most children their age. Um, I think Springer was talking with some of her friends, and there were some that had never been to funerals. And the next closest one was probably a third of as many as my children had been to. This is not a brag. This is just reality. Um, this includes grandfathers and great-grandfathers. It includes a mother, a grandmother that they have not met. This includes, um, this includes an uncle. This includes three members of our own staff. It's significant. It makes sense of the language of how long, O oh Lord? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? How long will I have to have sorrow in my heart all day long? Uh, Springer, um, after her uncle, my brother-in-law, Amanda's brother died, she was doing what she does to work through her stuff. She was actually throwing the lacrosse ball as hard as possible at a net. And I was sitting outside with her, and I was at the fire pit. It was summer, so it wasn't like a pleasant, don't think pleasant, think hot. And she sat down beside me and used words that I am so proud of her for using. And she asked me the question, how do you still believe? This is precisely what the psalmist is doing. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from me forever? He sings that into our own hearts as she did that day. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. It's an amazing book. It's both theological and philosophically tight. But in the introduction to that book, he uh, called for a better man to write a better book with a higher task of dealing with the real problem of pain. In it, he says, I think I have a quote up here, when grief is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy helps more than much courage. And the least tincture, the love of God, helps more than all. Now, God actually made C.S. Lewis that better man who wrote that more important book in a book called A Grief Observed. It's an incredible book, and I, I recommend it to you fully. It explored the problem of pain as he had lost his wife. In an intimate, in an immediate way, not the theoretical way, and it's absolutely glorious. Because what he does is explore that we need, what we need from God is not, uh, uh, is a balm to our bodies and souls amid that pain, not a reworking um, 
of a worldview. What we need is his presence in the middle of it. You see, the philosophical problem of pain is fine, but the problem of pain, day in, day out, is that it hurts. That's the problem of pain. And that's what Psalm 13 does for us this morning, with us this morning. The philosophical questions matter, don't get me wrong. Um, How does God let these kinds of pains in our lives? There's a problem of causality, there's a problem of sovereignty, there's a problem of free will, there's a problem of culpability. I was trained for four years to answer these questions, and I find them mostly unimportant in the middle of pain. If at best unimportant in the middle of the pain, and at worst avoidant of the pain we experience. In our pain, our truest balm in life is with God and with our neighbors. In the grace of Christ, through the comfort of the Spirit of the living God, it is that least tincture of the love of God that helps us walk through suffering. But there is a problem because that least tincture of the love of God is is hard to get at because, like, in the midst of suffering, courage, human sympathy, love of God can be hard to find because internally and externally we can scatter, even bodily or emotionally or spiritually. Um, the, the, the psalm says that, that I, rescue me, God, because, because my enemies are rejoicing over me because I'm shaken. Shaken. Shaken in grief. And God wants an answer to that shakenness. See, Psalm 13 assumes that if we are courageous enough to enter into the real pain that we live in, that at some point in your pain journey, you will, even, you will wonder even if God is there. How long will you hide your face from me? That's not a denial of God, but an, an embrace of the experience of pain and then crying out to God amid that pain. And God himself gives us the language of lament. He offers it to us. The inspired word of God gives us that language to have doubt amid our pain. Now, Western culture, society, the church itself spends most of the time trying to get you to avoid your pain. We look to cure it as if it was a malady or a disease of some sort or bypass it and, 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 um, as if like doubt revealed some weakness about God or our theology or us. But this Psalm 13 says, here, this is language for you because there's no managing grief. All we have in the scriptures is to give us a posture towards that grief and sorrow and pain. But let that encourage you because God himself gives us words, lyrics within the problem of pain and, and, and then gives us the posture to sing those lyrics inside of that pain. It is an amazing gift to us, Psalm 13. And this posture of pain which he develops, I have 
three of them because I'm a Presbyterian. Um, but the, 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 the scripture clearly has in these stanzas. And it's the posture of pain is like the first one that he gives us is a, is a posture of groaning. These repeated questions, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul alone, I think is what the best reading of that, or sour in my heart all the day? How long will the enemies be exalted over me? Please marvel at this. The inspired spirit, the, the inspired words of God by the Spirit Lyrics of lament are welcoming you, my friends, to come to him to explore the depths of groaning. Allow your soul to take the courageous posture of sobs and whimpers. Sobs and whimpers can be faithful before God. Lament before the Lord. He welcomes you there. It's okay to say, how long, God, did you forget me? Why are you hiding from me? I'm alone. I'm done. I'm undone. My, my circumstances are too much for me. Do you even hear? Why are you so far off? Do you even care? That's what consider me means. Look, do you care? It's a rapid-fire expression of ache. It's spoken words set to a minor key. It's what Dan Allender says, that few of us enter the tragedy of living in a fallen world and then simultaneously struggle with God until our hearts bleed with hope. So don't posture yourself like so many of us are tempted to do, including me, as an optimist that's enduring pain with a smile or a hero enduring pain with a gritted teeth, with gritted teeth. They are the enemies of the lyric of lament. Some of you are suckers for the optimist role. I'm a sucker for the hero role. I'll get to that in a second. Some of you are, are suckers for the optimist role. You look at a casket and say, don't they, don't she, doesn't she look beautiful? N no. More beautiful than she looked a little bit ago, but not as one with the breath of life in her. Or the worst, which is also bad theology, don't worry, they're an angel now. A, they're not, and B, the whole thing, I'm not even worried about the theology, it's literally a, a, a fear-ridden refusal to deal with the reality of death. Now, not to be too bad on the optimists, I don't know if you know this, but I don't struggle with optimism. I'm a sucker for the faithless point of view that is heroic. Now, of course, mine is theologically nuanced and sophisticated, What should I be learning from this? How can I get this pain to give me the best sanctification bang for the pain buck? How should the, what, what is God doing in the kingdom to expand through this? That's not a terrible question, but when it's all tied to the heroic gritted teeth thing and not dealing with the grief itself, it's a problem. But either a hero or an optimist, avoid the posture of groaning before God. And it short circuits the reality of the Spirit meeting you with where you actually are and not where you pretend to be. It requires us to live in the naked truth of the hard realities of the brokenness of this world. 
hoping that God would clothe us amidst that naked truth. There is another posture that he gives, which um, is in the second stanza. It's in verses 3 and 4, and he invites us to this other posture of pain called pleading. Consider and answer me. That is grammatically a command. It also includes, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I fall into the sleep of death. Has anyone ever experienced grief that felt close to death? And the enemies will say, I prevailed over him. They will rejoice if I am shaken. Faithful groaning begets faithful pleading. We own the pain that we're in, and then we beg God for help. God, I mean, David's plea is like, God, answer me. Look at me. Look where I am, and then enliven me. Give sight to my eyes that are now dark because I can't see. Silence the enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the things that attack me, that will rejoice over my destruction. He's saying, God, please, change my circumstances. Change this pain. And this is absolutely liberating. I used to think, again, see the heroism of the previous statement, that the most noble posture before God was a kind of virtuous resignation to whatever came before me. It would be like, God, no matter what happens, I still love you and I'll follow you. And there's something good to that. I'll get to that in a second. I would even use Job, which says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. But that was me, like, tweet texting out of context. Because that entire passage is Job pleading with God to change his circumstances. He's literally begging him that his accusers would stop. That that all that has befallen him would be over. That God would intervene in his trouble. Of course, God will worship, or Job will worship God if God decides not to. But the point is of that context is that he is pleading with God to change the circumstances and the pain that he is in. It is biblical for you to ask for the pain to stop. Of course, he can say no, and he will say no at times. And it will be ultimately for your good or the good of the kingdom and certainly for his glory. And that's okay. Then you can pull in that though he slay me. But all of that is born of love. And it certainly doesn't cut out the middle part where you ask for things to change. Pleading before God to change the circumstances is courageous and faithful and dramatically different than the way we have been taught in the world and often in the church. What we have been taught is the other two parts, cynicism and apathy. Cynicism is pain with a scowl, and apathy is a pain with a straight face, right? A face unmoved. Cynicism circles your emotional wagons. People are going to hurt you, so just expect it. Then you don't have to feel the pain. Apathy says it's just deadened and you cut the edges off of the glory and the pain. You live with no spectrum. But either one of them 
keeps you from pleading to God to relieve the pain. It's a preemptive strike on the ache and a resignation that it just doesn't matter. And guess what? It'll keep you warm. It feels like a warm blanket at times. But it is not healthy. It is not good. That blanket's got, I don't know, scurvy on it or something. I don't know, scurvy's the other thing. What is the other thing that was in the blankets? Smallpox. Thank you. Scurvy is the internal. Yeah, thank you. That's not my notes, you can tell. (laughs) The posture of Psalm 13 invites us to the pleading. But there's still another posture, and it's so important that David puts before us. And this is actually as much of a challenge as the other two, to go to him with your groaning and to go to him with your pleading. It's to go to him in remembering who he is and what he's done. Remembering. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall or will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, extra with me. It's this remembering of this steadfast love, also covenant love or loving kindness that he is saying must be remembered. David is trusting that amidst his grief that he has sung truthfully to, sung truthfully to God that that sorrow can turn into dancing, that, 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 that in fact, that he will sing again. In fact, he will sing now with the knowledge. He will sing and lament with the knowledge of singing and rejoicing. It's glorious, and it's hard. He knows that there's more story to this grief, and he sings with a voice and a heart and a strength that it's barely even there amid his other grief, but, but he's saying, yes, I bring this to bear fully. It is that least tincture of love that he's holding on to. He recalls God's faithfulness in the past to give perspective on the present and the future. That's what he's doing. When Springer came to me on the fire pit, I was not happy with the answer I gave her when she asked, why do you still believe or how do you still believe? My answer was, with all the theological sophistication I could muster, I don't know. And then I realized in this passage and others, that was the right answer. Because then I went on to say, but I cannot deny what God has done in my life, what God did in Nate's life, what God's done in your life, what God's done in your Connie's life, your grandfather's life, what God's done. Like, he has done amazing things, and I would be a liar to say he didn't. And I have to deal with that reality, even though I don't understand why. Bountiful past provision gives present and future hope. There, we need to have a word for it. I'm trying to coin it because, you know, deeply I want to be Shakespeare, coins all sorts of words. Pre-remembering. We remember the pre for the future. Prememberang. Got it. One day I'll be famous for that. It is the point that where we say there is this tincture of love that we know is true in the past, that is true in our present, that will be true one day in glory forever. That's what we're saying. And it ain't easy. Because it means you have to look upon caskets 
and bet on the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come and hope in it. You have to trust that somehow the miracle of the empty tomb of Jesus will be reenacted in the fields across this land. But you do not short-circuit the bleak reality of what it is there. And in fact, when you widen those spectrums, it becomes more glorious and more beautiful, and Jesus gets more honor and glory, and we live more humanly in the middle of it. All right, this is going to sound like a non-sequitur, and I've gone a little longer than I, my notes had. So there's this posture that this, the psalm creates for us, but there's a background in it, which is the place, not just where we suffer or where we experience pain, but there's places where the healing happens. And I would just want to go over those quickly as we move toward the end. The place of both the pain and the healings actually in our full and whole-bodied cells. It's in your body. The, the language of sorrow in the heart in verses 2 and 5, it, it, the Hebrew word would be best translated gut, most literally liver. That, that the pain that we experience, the suffering we experience is actually in our bodies. It talks about the counsel of his own soul, that there's a spiritual element to our human beings that, that is part of our bodies. There's eyes that need to be lightened up. There's physical safety with respect to the enemies. There are the how-longs where the mind is working through what's going on, how is it happening. See, the emotional, physical, intellectual, spiritual, all that stuff is united in us in a way that we need to take account for. And that's what this psalm does. Emotional pain begets physical exhaustion. Am I, I mean, do I even have to say that? No. And that, that emotional pain that begets physical exhaustion creates thoughts. But thoughts beget sadness that can beget physical exhaustion. And of course, physical exhaustion can beget any array of emotions and thoughts. Like, we, we, we're stuck together. It's the intellectual, the emotional life, and it's our body holds together. And you can tell in the psalm that it's true. And trying to tease them out as if there were real clear moments of each is actually malformative. It actually doesn't help. It just helps us manage. But I've already said... Grief isn't to be managed. It's to be endured with a posture in your whole body. Well, why do I bring this up? Here's what I mean. There's a way of reading this psalm that like, okay, David, he was kind of having an emotional spaz out in the beginning, and then what he did is he came to his intellectual senses, and that calmed everything. But you can't look at it like that. This is a whole psalm. It's only six verses, which means it was sung over and over and over again. You, this, this psalm is not to be... Um, principalized, it's supposed to be participated in. You're supposed to sing it and own it into your body, into your soul, into your spirit, and your mind, and your strength to experience all of that as you move forward in it. Of course, it includes the, oh my gosh, I have to remember as well, but it also includes all the other things. It's not progress, it's all of it together. It's about this whole-bodied response, but that's not the only body. Because the very first verse, which doesn't look like a verse in your translations, is what I put on the slide as zero, to the choir master, Psalm of David. In the Hebrew text, that's verse one. In our, American, our English text, to the choir master, Psalm of David, feels like it's like just a header, which does happen in like NIV and ESV when you're like 
Jesus fed the 5,000 or something like that. But in the Psalms, that's actually the first deal. So here's what I'm trying to say, is this is meant to be sung in a choir. It's meant for us to sing together. It's not his devotional journal that kind of got eked out, you know. Somebody let it free and sent it to the press, and then they put it together. God's people actually had a choir master and a choir that worked on this, had notes and tunes to it, worked on it over and over again, figured out when the rests and the stops and all that other stuff was going to happen, and then they brought it forth to the congregation for them to sing over and over and over again. It's not an off-the-cuff, impromptu, slow jam. It's just not. They rehearsed it, and they brought it as a gift to the community that we would all sing together. Because there are times when you can only sing, where are you? And that's when you need your brothers and sisters to sing, he shall bring his salvation. And sometimes when you're like, he shall bring his salvation too triumphantly, you need to hear, where are you? If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a church to raise a Christian, it takes a choir to lament well. That's where we are. We have to learn to sing the blues together. There is it is. The pain and the healing are in your bodies, in the body, but ultimately, it's in our Lord Jesus' body, the most important place where healing occurs. The physical body of Christ who suffered and died and rose from the dead. It is both a comfort amid our pain and a vindication of all the pain in the world. And this means both the suffering that has been caused by others in us and the suffering that we have caused others. This is the glory of our Lord Jesus' body. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 13 in a way that makes him, if you will, the choir master. The true choir master, capital C. Because Jesus is the high priest who sympathizes with us in all of our temptations and sin and brokenness. Jesus was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And if you want to be acquainted with Jesus, you're going to be acquainted with grief. He sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane. If you don't know much about Jesus, the one time that he, well, one of the times that he was dealing with death of a close friend, how he responded, he's going up to Lazarus' tomb, his buddy and family friend, if you will, and he just reviews the devastation of death. Did he say, I told you this is the, the, this is the result of the fall, the wages of sin are death, and you're culpable in the death of the world? No. He, he didn't say, say, stay on the back and just kind of be blank-faced and say, you know, it's, just, it's, real, it's real heavy over there, so I'm not jumping in. He didn't say what I would have done, see Hero again, buck up y'all, watch this. I'm about to raise this dude from the dead. Don't cry now. He didn't do any of that. No, in, in the most profound sentence in all of Scripture and shortest, not most profound, that's, that's rhetorical. One of the many profound sentences 
in all of Scripture is Jesus wept. The one who created every hair on every head and the seas and the cosmos entered in and wept at death. He just wept. He groaned. And what he did was groan, plead to his father, and remember God's faithfulness. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the reason he raised Lazarus from the dead, remember, Lazarus is going to die again and have to be raised from the dead. The reason he raised Lazarus from the dead is to show what he was doing in being the body that would be the place of our healing from pain and brokenness. He raised him from the dead to show that he is the choir master of all the pain and all the vindication and healing of pain in the world. Yes, there's more, and he went to the cross, and he cried out in a psalm of lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the one that heard the jeers. He's the one that, that, that was impaled, that took the nails into his hands and his feet, the one who sipped bitter vinegar, the one who sipped that vinegar and then pours out wine for a table for us, which he calls his blood. And he is the one that, through the Father's power, was raised from the dead to bring us healing and to one day wipe every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we love you. We praise you for your goodness and your care. Teach us to grieve well, both in our groaning and our pleading, but especially in our remembering. And let us, give us the grace, God, to experience the healing of pain in our bodies, in our greater body, and in your body. We pray in your name. Amen.